1: What's up everybody? Welcome to the Roto World Football Podcast. As you can probably tell, I am not Josh Norris. My name is Raymond Summerlin. I'm filling in for Josh this week and I have with me one of my Roto World compatriots. You know him as Roto Pat. I just call him Pat, Mr. Patrick Doherty. How are you?
2: I'm good. Uh just had a really spicy lunch and drank like a gallon of water, which uh I've been told it is the best way to
1: prepare for a podcast. So, really looking forward to that. If you'd have finished it with a nice glass of milk, it would have been even better.
2: Yes. I'm just trying to have as much liquid as possible. So, you know, I've heard that if you really have to go to the bathroom, it gets you like at the top of your podcasting game. So,
1: today, Pat and I are going to preview training camp, specifically the AFC training camp and what we're looking for. From a fantasy perspective, some of the most interesting storylines that we're looking for. But before we do that, we're going to do what I guess we do best and talk about some news. There, this is really a slow time in news. Thankfully for the two of us, this is a slow time in news, and it has been this year. But there still were some interesting stories over the last week. Maybe most notably has been Carlos Williams' stomach. He reported to Minicamp, reportedly 20 to 25 pounds overweight Weight he gained, uh, I believe he thinks it was sympathy weight that he was gaining with his previously pregnant wife. I believe they've had their child now, so I'll talk to them. But the Buffalo News believes that he's going to open training camp on the sidelines doing conditioning drills. They do not think he will be able to get into the requisite shape and ready for uh, to be ready for training camp. Is this something that concerns you, this story? Is this something that is actionable information that will cause Carlos Williams to maybe slip down your draft board a little bit?
2: Yeah, you know, there's a tendency to say, you know, to brush off like anything. Oh, you know, it's just an off-season story. This isn't a concern. But I'd say, you know, it's a slightly legitimate concern. First off, i gonna say his excuse is bogus. I lost weight when my kid was being born. So I'm not buying that at all. But yeah, you know, this opens creates an opening for fifth round rookie Jonathan Williams that you know maybe wasn't there before. Williams is a guy who was pretty intriguing in college, had the looks of maybe of a future NFL feature back before he broke his foot, and you know, because of his draft status, maybe someone people are sleeping on a little bit. But this is a guy who could immediately threaten, who might not have had that opening before, but now he does. And so, yeah, I would say. I'm still a believer in Carlos Williams as the Bills' as number two running back, but I would say this has definitely altered his standing.
1: Yeah, and I think you're right that maybe if this was a different situation, it wouldn't. I wouldn't worry about it as much. But I do like Jonathan Williams. He, I think he was the best running back on his college team, and that included Alex Collins, who's now with the now with the Seahawks. And I thought Williams was a far superior back than him. And if not for the injury, probably would have gone much higher in the draft. So he's a highly capable back. They also have Mike Gillisley, who did showed some things at the end of last season. He you know contributed some big plays. He kind of did some Carlos Williams things, which is interesting. Um, but I think that from his days in Miami, we know what he is at this point. He's just a jag. But either way, he's still on the roster as well. And it's not like Carlos Williams was perfect last year. We remember him as the big play threat that he was, and he certainly he certainly you know had some explosive moments. But he was kind of up and down and dealt with injuries. So coming off a rookie season that was far from conclusive, I think it was exciting, but it was far from conclusive. And then you come into your sophomore training camp out of shape and so out of shape that you might not be able to practice when training camp opens. That's a story, and that's something that, that's something that really could affect his standing on the depth chart. And if it does, if he's not the number two, I still think he will be, but if he's not the number two, then that dramatically alters where you're willing to take him in fantasy drafts.
2: Yeah, and absolutely. And like, again, it's not like he can hang his head on the fact that Jonathan Williams is a fifth rounder because you know, Oh, when was the last time the bills featured a fifth round rookie running back? It was last year with Carlos Williams. So it's not like, oh, this guy's just a day three pick. You know, I got to just knock off these pounds and they'll all be hunky-dory. I mean, I think this is a legitimate issue for him. And like you, I agree. I think he's still going to be the number two back. You know, I think maybe more than anything else, for fantasy purposes, this whole episode maybe just properly prices him. You know, he was a guy who was so explosive on so few touches last year that he was maybe like a prime overdraft candidate. But now this has definitely pushed his price down into more kind of like the RB36, RB40 range. So – Maybe, if nothing else, it's just properly priced Carlos Williams, but, yeah, I agree that this is not something that can just be laughed off as, like, a July storyline.
1: On to one of the, I think, the most upsetting and perplexing story of the last week, and that is the image that Isaiah Crowell posted on his Instagram account last week in the midst of of the, you know, of the violence, both, you know, against against people of color and also against police. He posted an image of an officer being executed. It was very graphic. He took it down pretty quickly and he then issued what looked like a sincere apology. He has since apologized again and promised his week one game check to the Dallas Police Department, donated to the Dallas Police Department. And he also apologized to the Cleveland police head. And I believe that the head of the police union came out on Wednesday and said, you know, we accept his apology. So it seems like it seems like this is starting to blow over. The Browns have said they do not plan to cut him. But I guess the first question would be do you still think that's the case? Is, is Isaiah Crowell going to make it to the regular season still on the roster?
2: You know, I would say, first off, you know, there are social media, quote unquote, gaps. And then there's this, which is you know, he's really, really lucky he still has his roster spot. And I'd say that's probably the main thing working in his favor that. If he didn't get released, you know, this week, then he's probably not going to get released for this incident. Like, like you said, he it was horrible, but he's gone to great lengths to try to make it right. And I'd see, yeah, you know, clearly, it's put him kind of like head. Of, he's like this is like head on a swivel type time for him. Where like any slip up, you know, he's probably going to be gone. But I think the fact that he still has his roster spot now, the Browns are probably willing to forgive and to forget with him. But he 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 was a guy who already had very little room for error, and now he has zero room for error because. In college to me Duke Johnson looked like a future three down back so if they cut Isaiah Crowell it's not like you can say there's no plausible in-house candidate you know Duke Johnson could maybe be that guy and you know Terrell Watson's the kind of like he's the kind of small school sleeper who could wally pip Isaiah Crowell too you know kind of what Crowell did came in as an undrafted free agent and made an immediate impact and I'd say that The worst for him is over from this, but he's gone from a guy that had very little room for error to zero room for error.
1: So we can talk about Terrell Watson. I think that that's utterly ridiculous. I don't think he's any good whatsoever, and I'm going (laughs) to go to my grave on that one. But (laughs) I I just
2: upset because he went to ITT Tech. You know, it's a respectable football school. You know, get off
1: his back. uh. Azusa Pacific. (laughs) I I hadn't even heard of it until I looked at his tape two years ago. I agree with you. I think that he's going to stick because, like you said they wouldn't have gone through all of this trouble to just cut him in a week. So, he's going to stick uh, unless he, you know, unless he has another mistake. I think he's going to stick on the roster. But to your point, Duke Johnson was a guy I loved 2 years ago. I thought he could be a 3 down guy. There have been there have been all these little leaks, all these little reports all off-season about how the old Browns coaching staff thought he could be a 3 down guy before he was injured. The new Browns coaching staff, they love him. They called him the "quote unquote ultimate weapon and all of this was before what happened with Crowell and by the way before what he did what he posted on his Instagram page they were already questioning his ability to be the lead back and his ability to be consistent they said he has the skills he has the tools but he has to show it to us all of the kind of all of the kind of rumble all offseason has been that maybe Duke Johnson was going to have a much bigger role than we expected And now with this, I think it's leaning me more towards Duke Johnson, where I had kind of been a Crowell guy before. I love him. I think he's good. I think he's talented back. I thought he was going to get the opportunities. But after this, after Hugh Jackson spent literally the entire spring talking about how important character was, and now he comes out and does something like this— and he certainly puts himself in the doghouse, you would think early in camp, and that opens up opens up the opportunity for Duke Johnson to come in and say, "Hey, this is my job. I can be a three down guy and if he is, if he does, he's so good in the passing game that you wouldn't worry that much about game script. I think he's going to be good enough in the early on early downs that I think he can be very effective, so we're looking at Duke Johnson perhaps being undervalued at this point if he can come into camp and win the job i wouldn't have thought he could two weeks ago after this situation and knowing what hugh jackson's been about at least over the last six months and what he said over the last six months i think there is a real chance that duke johnson wins this job
2: yeah i couldn't agree more and just kind of put a bow on it too you know, let's not forget this is a team that might be in a position to cut players that it otherwise wouldn't cut because you know the browns are not playing for 2016 they're the Philadelphia 76ers in the NFL plan for 2026. So maybe a team in a normal position wouldn't cut a player as talented as Isaiah Corell, but the Browns are in a position where if you're ever going to cut a guy for doing this kind of thing, it could be this year when they're clearly not playing for this year. So yeah, this, the advice to Isaiah Corell is no more slip ups.
1: On to the last little bit of news before we get into the storylines. And actually, this one's going to be a huge storyline, at least at the beginning of camp, and that is the quarterback. Uh, the Ryan Fitzpatrick contract saga, which goes on and on and on and on. How many blurbs have you written about Ryan Fitzpatrick this, this year, do you think?
2: I'd Probably, I was going to try to say like a joke answer, like 200, but the real answer is probably almost as embarrassing where I bet since March, I've probably done 30 Ryan Fitzpatrick blurbs, which, you know, it's just way, way too many to be writing with the 27th best quarterback
1: in the NFL, I, I was going to say a thousand, and I don't really think I'm joking.
2: <laughs> you might not be, to be honest, you know, sometimes this all starts to blur together and like you become just such a, such a captive to the news cycle that you just kind of give yourself over to it and you're numb to it. But yeah, maybe a thousand's accurate, I don't know.
1: So the latest, the latest is that the New York Post reports there has been no progress in contract talks, which is where it feels like we've been sitting for months now. So I guess the the important question, the most important question before we get into this is, ultimately, do you think that Fitz signs with the Jets?
2: I do. I mean, it still makes too much sense for both sides. I mean, there's a reason that the Jets invest in a quarterback every single year, whether it's a signing Ryan Fitzpatrick or acquiring Ryan Fitzpatrick or using a day-two pick on a quarterback. It's because they do not believe in Geno Smith. So I still think it's going to happen. I mean, Ryan Fitzpatrick, is you know, nowhere else to sign this summer. But there's enough animosity here where, you know, I don't know if you've heard this or not, but Ryan Fitzpatrick went to Harvard. Uh, oh, so really? Might, yeah, it's not ever talked about when people talk about Ryan Fitzpatrick, but he went to Harvard, yes. But so uh, th- that terrible joke aside, I mean, he's the kind of guy who maybe he's, you know, if he decides pride is more important than money, he's the kind of guy where if he takes the financial hit now, you know, at least in season or in training camp, the second anyone gets hurt, you know, he's going to be the first call for every team. So, if he decides the Jets have treated him badly enough, he might be more willing than like a typical kind of low end QB1 to actually, you know, make it all about pride instead of money and actually do it. But I still think it makes too much sense for it not to happen.
1: Yeah, I'm with you. I mean, I don't know what other options there are at this point. It's not like quarterbacks routinely get hurt in training camp. It's not like you're a veteran running back. You know, this isn't Arian Foster or Reggie Bush, someone sitting out there that knows that running backs are going to get hurt in the preseason. That's just that's that's not something we see routinely from quarterbacks. And so I would say that there's no other option really for either side. If you're the Jets, do you want to start Geno Smith? No. They don't. Yeah that's why they've
2: (laughs) drafted very questionable college quarterbacks each the past two years. That's how little they believe in Geno Smith. So yeah. They do not want to start Geno Smith. I do not want to start Geno I for their sake do not want them to start Geno Smith.
1: Exactly. So, we're looking at a situation where for both sides, they have no other option. And in that case, then it makes the most sense for this signing to happen. And and I absolutely think it will. But I do think we're getting to the time where we have to start considering what happens to the offensive weapons on the Jets if Fitzpatrick does not re sign. So, out of Brandon Marshall, Eric Decker, and Matt Forte, which one would you be worried the most about? Which one takes the biggest hit? If Ryan Fitzpatrick doesn't resign,
2: you know, they're playing for Chan Gailey. who's a guy who kind of always seems to get fantasy guys their numbers, but I'd probably have to be the most concerned about Eric Decker. I mean, I, I think they'll all take a hit, but I think R- Brandon Marshall, I think, would still be kind of in the mid range, high end, wide receiver two conversation with Geno Smith. But I mean, Eric Decker is a guy we just saw two years ago before Ryan Fitzpatrick was there. You know, he was, he really, really struggled. And I think he could be. He's clearly one of the league's best number two receivers, but I think if he's forced to play a year with Geno Smith or, God forbid, Christian Hackenberg or whatever, I mean, I think he's really he goes from like the kind of elite art wide receiver two to more of like the thirty to thirty two range, kind of like a real mid range lower end wide receiver two, wide receiver three, and that's probably why Eric Decker has been so like spending his whole summer like begging the Jets to resign Ryan Fitzpatrick. So I think he definitely has the most to lose.
1: Yeah, and I'd take that a little farther. I mean, I think both Brandon Marshall and Eric Decker have some natural regression that will come to their touchdown numbers and red zone opportunities. They finished seventh and first, respectively. Eric Decker finished first in red zone targets last year, and he was very—he was pretty effective. He's always been effective in that area. And I would think that that offense takes a step back, even if Fitzpatrick comes back. So there was some natural regression that was going to come. But if they're if, – there's no Ryan Fitzpatrick. I have a hard time seeing Eric Decker in my top 30 among wide receivers, simply because we saw what happened with him two years ago with Geno Smith. He played 15 games, most of those with Geno Smith, and he scored five touchdowns. That's the only time in the last four seasons he hasn't scored at least 11. So he's been an elite touchdown scorer every year, except the year he spent most of the, most of the time playing with Geno Smith. And obviously that was a different offense. It's a different offensive situation. You know, Chan Gailey is a a better offensive mind than they were playing under in 2014. But I do think that there's some, there's some serious concern here for Decker. I think there's concern for Brandon Marshall. I view him as kind of a low, low fringe wide receiver one. I think that he's more of a mid range wide receiver two. if there's no Fitzpatrick. And what I would say about Forte is I think he's widely, wildly overvalued already. So my valuation of him might not change very much, but the one good thing about Ryan Fitzpatrick, if he decides not to resign or if he goes somewhere else would be that maybe Matt Forte would actually be valued properly instead of ridiculously overvalued like he is right now.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And going back to one thing you said, uh, Ryan Fitzpatrick doesn't sign. I'll have a very hard time viewing Eric Decker as a top 30 receiver.
1: Yeah, absolutely. He would easily be out of my, be out of my top 30. So Moving on, we're going to talk a bit about AFC training camp storylines, you know, what we're looking for going into the AFC next week. We'll tackle the NFC and there's some interesting things in there as well. But moving to the AFC, I guess the the first, the most important one Um, for me, is happening in San Diego, and that is with running back Melvin Gordon, sophomore running back Melvin Gordon, who is coming off, by his own account, a terrible year, which I don't know how he could have called it anything else. He had microfracture surgery in January, which is very scary, although he was able to get back on the field during the offseason program. So what does Gordon need to show in training camp to really have you interested? That's a good question. I mean,
2: yeah, if if social media videos are to believe, you know, he's already looking like Barry Sanders this offseason. So, you know, that's really good. But, you know, like you said, this is – the is one of the most serious injuries a player can suffer. And by all accounts, he's had a seamless recovery. He's ready to go. You know, the Chargers are acting like he had a hangnail removed. But, like you said, this is a player who, even before he had one of the most serious operations, a running back can have – averaged three and a half yards for carry as a rookie he didn't score a touchdown of course and he's a supposed home run threat whose longest run was like 27 yards so I don't really know what he could show me this summer to get excited about but he's the kind of guy where you just kind of you got to trust in the, the opportunity he has which is I clearly still want him to be the bell cow back they clearly still want him to be a big part of the offense, be really involved. They want to prove he isn't a bust that they didn't waste a first round draft pick. But, you know, that's kind of like when, when you get into hope and faith territory like that with players, it's never the best reason to draft a player. And I don't really know what he could show me this summer to get me legitimately excited, but just the role that we know he's going to have makes him, you know, at least kind of a RB2, RB3 borderline for me. But he's a guy where I don't, yeah, short of, averaging 14 yards per carry this preseason, I don't really know what he could do for me.
1: Well, I guess for me, the first and foremost would be health. I mean, if he's not healthy, who cares? But it does look like he's going to be healthy. The thing I'm really going to be looking for are the kind of tidbits out of camp, the rumors out of camp. You know, when new offensive coordinator Ken Wisenhunt came in, he said he was being brought in to jumpstart the running game, which is something that he did well whenever he was the offensive coordinator in San Diego in 2013. In 2013, the Chargers had the sixth most rushing attempts in the league. They had the seventh highest rushing percentage. I I don't think they're going to get quite back to those heights, but they had the fifth lowest rushing percentage last year. So they were completely on the other side of the spectrum. Now, part of that comes down to the fact that Melvin Gordon was so terrible that they just couldn't get a running game going. They figured out that Phillip Rivers was their best option, and then they they ran with it. But I think that Wizenhunt coming in, saying right off the bat, hey, we need to get the running game going, that's an indication to me that they're going to try to get Melvin Gordon carries. And if it continues through camp, if that's what we continue to hear through camp, and he's coming through it healthy, then that might get me interested, but it's all going to, it's all going to be about price. I'm not going to take him as anything more than a running back three. I'm not going to really dive in. I don't know what the upside's there, especially considering how much Danny Woodhead's used in the red zone. I mean, he didn't score, Melvin Gordon didn't score a single touchdown last year. So I'm, I am interested. And if it comes out that they're going to try to run an offense that is more similar to what they did in 2013, then that is, that's certainly something to keep an eye on. But short of that, I'm not, I'm never going to be really interested. I'm never going to be really interested in him as a running back too, unless like you said, something crazy happens in the preseason.
2: Yeah. I mean, he's a post-type sleeper solely by virtue of how terrible he was, which is never the way you want to be a post-type sleeper. And there's one quick thing too. Yeah. I, completely agree with you that uh, Melvin Gordon is going to be one of like the subtle blurb stars of training camp. Like the union tribune, San Diego said Tuesday that Melvin Gordon showed quote unquote, a second gear in practice (laughs) or, you know, or like uh, NFL.com's Ian Rappaport says Melvin Gordon looked quote unquote sluggish on Monday. He's going to be one of those guys where I'm going to be reading between every line.
1: No, absolutely. Uh, Because like, we just don't want him to be terrible again like that's that's the most important thing just don't be terrible and uh and maybe be fine uh speaking of being terrible uh let's talk a little <laughs> bit about demarco murray uh, and i guess most
2: specific- best transition in the history of
1: podcasts uh well he's terrible so there you go uh, i guess more specifically we'll talk about how big of a workload we we expect him to see you know when he was when the titans traded for him i think that the what we all thought was he was going to be the clear you know, lead dog. And then they came out and they drafted Derek Henry. You know, that strategy makes sense considering they say that they want to be a hashtag exotic smash mouth offense. But obviously they invested in both backs. They invested, you know, guaranteed money in both backs, which suggests some kind of timeshare. How do you think it shakes out?
2: Well, you know, the Titans have an unwavering commitment to unsatisfying and ineffective committees. So, kind of regardless of what they say I'm envisioning definitely kind of a one-two punch hot hand type thing but I think it might lean like 55-45 in favor of DeMarco Murray which is you know maybe the worst split possible because it's just enough to like give him a supposed edge in fantasy but not nearly enough you know to really like produce any like true fantasy value so I think you know maybe I'm being too pessimistic but it's the Titans and it's DeMarco Murray, and I'm expecting this to just basically be one of the most frustrating situations in the entire league this season.
1: I agree completely, and I think one of the mitigating factors here is Murray's contract. They're stuck with him for the next two years. His next two years are guaranteed. They even if he is terrible this year, which if you watch where he was last year in Philadelphia, seems likely that he's going to be terrible again they are kind of stuck with him. And so if you're stuck with a guy, you know he's going to be on your roster, then you're going to keep giving him the ball, regardless if the guy behind him or the guy who's sharing the backfield with him and Derrick Henry is a lot better. Murray also has a lot more experience in the passing game, and I believe he's probably better at this point in his career in the passing game, although you know, we've heard some pretty good reports from Henry. But you know Henry just doesn't have that experience. He wasn't used that way in college. So that gives Murray a leg up. So I, I think you're right. I think they're both going to be involved. I think they're both going to be involved all year. And I think there'll be like five random Dexter McCluster touches every week. That just makes just makes every fantasy player upset. And when you look at that and the way that this is going to shake out, it pretty much makes DeMarco Murray untouchable at his current ADPs, the running back 19. Just absolutely no way I would take him there. And even Henry at running back 36, I don't know where the upside is unless Murray gets hurt. Because if you look at the situation, and specifically the money situation, I think it's pretty clear that Murray's going to be involved all year. So I think I'm just staying away altogether.
2: Yeah, I am too. And I agree, RB19 is completely preposterous. I mean, if you want to look at it from a pure, like, overall fantasy points standpoint, then I guess I'll still call Murray, like I said, the 55-45 favorite there, because I think he'll catch more passes, like you said, and you know, I guess there, maybe there's something to be said. He's going back to an offense that will supposedly be more north and south and not kind of east and west like Philadelphia was last year, which was clearly just a comprehensive failure with his skill set. But yeah, I think your, your best bet with the situation is just avoid it at all costs.
1: I agree completely. Um, another rookie back who's going to be a hot name during training camp, already a hot name on the tweeter machine. And in the podcast realm is DeAndre Washington, a fifth-round pick of the Raiders this year. He reportedly mixed in with the first-team offense during minicamp. Considering how much the Raiders talked about getting Latavius Murray some help over the offseason, do you think Washington becomes a big factor early in his career?
2: I guess maybe you can't say big, but I definitely think he'll become a factor. Like you said, he's already mixed in with the first-team offense, and you know, the Raiders spent the entire offseason basically telling people that they thought Latavius Murray sucked and, and they, they trashed him all off season and why they did that. And then only added a fifth rounder and maybe it was just more motivational than anything else. But you have Reggie McKenzie has already called Deandre Washington a complete back, which, you know, lots of people like, uh, from what I have seen from the film watching community, if you saw his college film, you would not agree with the complete back, uh, complete back designation a guy who's kind of sloppy struggles with some of the finer points but yeah, i don't see how i just don't see any way unless deandre washington this has a disastrous camp that he doesn't have some sort of role you know, maybe at least catches some passes or something and because like they spent the whole offseason talking about it. i just don't see how he doesn't at least get some rb3 rb4 action in fantasy
1: i wouldn't even go that high i agree with you that he's going to be involved because I think that they were looking for someone more efficient in the passing game. Latavius Murray was really terrible in the passing game. And you look at terrible. just awful. Like there was some, there was an interception <laughs> I can't get out of my head that bounced like off his hands twice and into a defender.
2: That was one of the most infamous plays of the season. I remember that it was it was literally like he had like Michelangelo's David's hands, like it was like literal stone. I know exactly the play you're talking about.
1: I mean, it, he was just awful, and so I really thought that they would bring someone in to help that. And I mean, to to that point, they had kind of started to take away the passing game stuff from him last year. I mean, they were giving they were giving targets to Marcel Reese, who's obviously good. They were giving targets to Jamaez Olawale, right? So they were giving targets to people, so I think that if you were thinking about Latavius Murray coming into the year, you were always thinking that his passing game numbers were going to come down i i would be you know it would be shocking if he saw fifty three targets again, and so Washington would have a role there. I think people are taking this too far though. I think people have a we as a fantasy community have this tendency to overhype rookies, especially late round running back. Rookies. I mean, the same thing is going to happen with Wendell Smallwood, who was also a fifth-round pick of the Eagles. This, I guarantee you, in training camp, the same thing is going to happen to Smallwood, and it's already kind of started. And these guys, you know, to come in and to really be, to really be effective running backs who are who are used, um, you know, often who are high snap running backs. You have to be. You have to be able to contribute on early down. Sure, you have to be able to catch out of the backfield. Sure, you have to be able to protect in pass protection, and that's the rub. And I think that that's the thing that we often overlook with running backs, especially you know we look at a guy and we say, well, this guy's so much better in the passing game than this guy. Why isn't he in the game, right? Well, because if you can't pick up a blitz, then it, you're not really helpful to your team. And I think that that idea is something we really need to focus on. So when we're looking at DeAndre Washington, I don't know if he's good in pass protection. I think he's, I from what I've read and what I saw, I think he's okay. But he was okay for college. He was okay for the spread that they run at Texas Tech. He was also not you know, particularly good as an early downer. He's more of a slasher type that I don't know how well he fits the Raiders' offense. So I put it all together, and I just have a hard time thinking that he's going to come in and be a three-down back, and he's going to really eat into Latavius Murray's carries. Into his catches? Sure. Into his carries? I don't see that happening. And I actually think that there's a good chance that Latavius Murray— betters his carry total from last year, which was 266. That team is better. They're going to be in better game script situations. They have a much better offensive line after adding uh, Kalichi Osamele. Did I get that one right? (laughs) Yeah, I think you did. Look at that. Nailed it. So they have a much better offensive line. I actually think there's a good chance Latavius Murray goes over 275 carries. And if I'm looking at this DeAndre Washington hype train, I don't want anything to do with him. But I think that it could push Latavius Murray's draft pre- costs down and that's actually something that that has me pretty excited
2: so to boil it down you think deandre washington is just the next theoretic not the next david johnson i mean I, i'm going with david johnson
1: oh you oh you think he'll be the next david johnson that's you're putting your you're putting all your cards on the table for deandre washington yeah, no
2: I, I do not think that at all and i think your assessment was pretty fair but cinda send, send your tweets to at roto Pat. <laughs> I do think he'll be I do think he'll be involved enough to be in like kind of in the RB3 RB4 borderline though which is sometimes all you can ask for in bye weeks. So yeah, he's a definite candidate, he'll be overhyped all summer but I think a role will be there.
1: Moving off the running backs a bit, we get to a team that doesn't just have running back questions, has questions at literally every fantasy position. Uh, Joe Flacco is going to be the quarterback, but he's coming off a major knee injury. It sounds like Justin Forsett will be the starter, but the depth chart behind him is packed. Steve Smith should be the number one receiver if he's healthy, but we don't know if he's healthy and we have no idea how the targets are going to shake out behind him. And the tight end spot is about as confusing as any depth chart in football. So how does this all work out in Baltimore?
2: I workshopped about a dozen just awful Hunger Games jokes for this, (laughs) and none of them were good. So, uh, I think the short answer of how this is going to sort itself out is the Ravens, the 2016 Ravens are why we still have training camp in the year of our Lord, 2016, you know, training camp isn't about, I mean, unless you're Carlos Williams training camp, isn't about like getting an amazing shape. You know, most of these guys, the vast majority of the guys stay in great shape and you know, training camp's a little more perfunctory than it used to be. Maybe some people disagree with that, but the Ravens are why we still do this and, like you said, I, I just I can't remember a jumbled mess like this. I mean, the fact that even at tight end they can't be settled at every major skill group, and even the quarterback—the one position that's supposedly settled—he's coming off a torn ACL. Like, yeah, I just can't remember a situation like this, and I'm not comfortable making any bold proclamations whatsoever about the Ravens.
1: No, I feel very comfortable saying I have no idea. Yes, exactly. Exactly. I I'm pretty confident I will not own a tight end, a Ravens tight end because that situation, they signed Ben Watson to a lot of money. I think because they thought Crockett Gilmore was going to be out for a lot longer than he's probably going to be out. Now you have Dennis Pitta who might play. I mean, I'll believe that when I see it, but he's coming back. They spent a second round pick last year on max Williams. He's still there. So the tight end position, just avoid it completely. Are you
2: telling me you think Ben Watson's 2015 isn't repeatable?
1: <laughs> he's only 87 years old, yeah, right?
2: Exactly. And uh, Dennis Pitta will probably be working for CBS by week five, but maybe that's too mean.
1: No, he could. He's a, he's a very pretty man. He'd be good <laughs> on camera. But, yeah, I mean, yeah. I
2: don't know if we can really break it down anymore than we have no idea, and we can pretend we have an idea, and then maybe we would win the coin flip, but we have no idea.
1: You know, there is one thing I'll be really looking forward to, and that is the health of Steve Smith. I think that if we find out Steve Smith's healthy, that answers a lot of questions in the receiver core. If we find out he's not healthy, that also answers a lot of questions. So I think receiver might be the one spot. Actually, that's not true. Running back, I think, will have a good idea of who the leader will be. I'd probably be Justin Forsett, but I just don't trust that to last. I mean, Justin Forsett will soon to be 31. He kind of had ups and downs last year, so I don't trust him to hold the lead job all year. So that's so that's another you know tough situation that might last through training camp. But at receiver, if Steve Smith comes comes in and he's healthy, I expect him to be the number one, and I expect them to kind of cobble it together behind him, depending on Rashad Perryman's health. If he's not healthy, I think that that means that Kamar Aiken because he's that next kind of best analog for Steve Smith. I think Kamar Aiken's going to be the guy. So that's one that I think we'll figure out pretty early in camp. But other than that, I, I mean, it's, it's going to be a crapshoot the whole way, I think. Moving on to receivers, uh, the biggest injury storyline entering camp will certainly be Sammy Watkins' foot. And I guess the, the overarching question with Sammy Watkins is, does his injury history scare you enough to kind of put you off drafting him?
2: Yeah, I mean, it definitely does. You know, lots of times when a guy can't stop suffering minor injuries, you know, it's a indication that the big one is coming. And that's what happened with Sammy Watkins this off season. And then once you have the big one, you know, kind of like an earthquake, there's a lot of times a lot of aftershocks, you know, maybe not necessarily with that injury. But you know, the point is, he's always been an injury prone player. And Aside from a non-bear, has there ever been a player? Maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like Sammy Watkins has gotten hurt more in practice than any player in the NFL right now. Maybe I'm completely making that up, but he's a guy where there's so much upside, so it's hard to say. I can't say I I won't draft him, but I get the feeling that he's probably going to be too expensive for me wherever he's going, and he's a guy where the injury history is just so pervasive, I don't know how I can ignore it.
1: You know what's funny is I'm actually not that worried about his injury history, I know he's been limited in a lot of games. He's only missed three in two years, which I guess for a receiver is a pretty high number, but it's just not something that... He's only
2: missed three, but he's a guy, he's played at less than 100% and, and effectively at less than 100% so many times. And that wasn't worth interrupting you, but I just did.
1: No, no, but you're right. Like, that's a, that's another fair point. But for some reason, it just doesn't it just doesn't bother me that much. I am much, much more concerned about a potential steep, steep decline in efficiency. He and Deshaun Jackson were the only two players last season with an average depth of target of above 16 and a catch rate of better better than 60%. And his average depth of target was above 18, and he caught 66% of his targets, according to Pro Football Focus. So we're looking at a guy who really broke the mold in terms of downfield efficiency. And that's not something that I would expect to... Happen again this year, at least not to that level. Now that offense, it's very play action heavy. That lends itself to efficient downfield passing. Tyrod Taylor has shown that he can throw a really good deep ball. The reason that Sammy Watkins' efficiency was so high, aside from you know him just being a good receiver, was that Tyrod Taylor was extremely efficient down the field last year.
2: Tyrod Taylor had the sophomore season that Robert Griffin III never had. Last, Tyrod Taylor's last season was Robert Griffin III's sophomore season. Uh, that was, again, not really sure why I interrupted, but I just thought of that and had to share that.
1: No, you're right. And like that ability to push the ball downfield and make big plays, as long as both are healthy, I, I think that's going to stick around. But not at the level it was last year when he was the wide receiver four over the last nine weeks. I mean, you also have to look at the touchdowns. I think there's some concern about his ability to replicate that touchdown production. They're going to be run heavy. That's what they want to be. I'm not sure... You know He's going to be the guy, and there's no question about that, and he's going to have a huge target share everywhere on the field. But I'm not sure that those touchdowns are going to repeat, especially considering almost all of his touchdowns, all about one of his touchdowns, came from 20 yards or more. So we're looking at a guy who scored from long distance, and those types of touchdowns you know, don't tend to repeat year after year. So I think that there's a scenario here in which Sammy Watkins even stays healthy and he's not as good as he was or even close to as good as he was over the, down the stretch last year. And so that means that if he was in the kind of wide receiver one conversation, I think that he'd be overvalued. The good thing about his injury history is it's kind of deflated his value enough that that kind of upside wide receiver two range that he's being drafted in now – I'm pretty happy to take him there because we saw like we saw over the second half of the season, if the offense does work and we've seen that it can work over a pretty, a pretty large sample size as NFL sample size go, I think that he can be an elite guy. So I'm I'm kind of wishy-washy on him. If he, you know, it all depends on price. If he's going in the top 10 and 12, I'm not interested. If he's going 15th, then I'm, I'm probably willing to take that bet.
2: Yeah. I think you laid it out. Well, Where I think, without getting i think he's gonna be a flashpoint player basically is what i'm kind of was going to try to get at there where he's gonna be a guy where he's either going to be one of the reasons you're like you're working towards titles because you got him at a discount and and he's he's a guy he's got top five upside so he can be the kind of guy you get at a discount that can be kind of a title producer or it can be a guy who maybe if you wait a receiver he ends up your wide receiver one or maybe go heavy on receivers and he's a wide receiver two that you're really counting on and he could totally flop like like you said even if he doesn't get hurt he could really underperform his draft position so i think he's gonna be one of those quote unquote, one of quote unquote one of those guys this year that's kind of one of the deciding players in fantasy football
1: another receiver with some injury questions heading into camp is julian edelman who had a second foot surgery following the season i believe he had it in april it sounds like he's going to be ready for camp but are you concerned at all about his outlook this year because of the injury
2: yeah, I'm a little concerned because you know, how do you value a guy like that? How do you value a guy who, A, has a long injury history, but B, you know, isn't traditional? He's produced as like a wide receiver one, wide receiver two in standard leagues when he's healthy, but he's not at all. He doesn't have the traditional mold of a receiver that kind of does that in standard leagues. You know, he's this PPR superstar who somehow manages it to translate it to standard league value a lot of the time. And But you know, he's a guy who he's only appeared in all 16 games once in seven seasons. He's average 13 games per season in the three years since wes welker left and to kind of make matters worse is you know in theory like you said it should be healthy for training camp so i'm thinking you know he'll be full go 100 percent for week one but so in theory though when he's going to be at his healthiest you know a player who's rarely healthy when he's going to be at his healthiest the first four games he's going to have jimmy garoppolo and so he's just he's real real tough case for me and yeah, you know, I just I can't see myself drafting him as more than a wide receiver three, and I think for sure he'll be drafted as a wide receiver two. So yeah. long story short, I, I buy into the concerns in Julian Edelman, and he's a guy that I'm not going to be reaching for this year.
1: I agree with that for the most part, especially the Garoppolo point, which I think is an important one. But I don't think that he's a player that you're going to have to reach for. He's the wide receiver, I believe 19, according to Fantasy Pros, ADP. But in the drafts that I'm doing, I'm seeing him go much lower. I got him, you know, deep into the sixth round of the SFB 480 that I was in. So he was he was well. I'm pretty sure he's outside the top 20 of receivers. So he was falling pretty low. And this is a guy that was on pace for 108 catches for 1230 yards and, and 12, 12 touchdowns, touchdowns before getting hurt. But
2: Julian Edelman's middle name though should be on pace. You know? Yeah. He was on pace for this until he suffered a mysterious rib injury. I don't think he's ever had a rib injury, but, no, yeah. I, again, I'm in the interrupting portion of the podcast where you're making good points that I agree with and then I interrupt.
1: No, but that's that that's that was the thing. That was his on-pace number, and then he got hurt. And your point that he's only played 16 games once, that's, that's a big deal. But, you know, I always come back with these injured guys. I, I tend to be higher on injured guys or people who are injury-prone because I come back to this idea that in most formats it's a weekly game. And so if I'm able to have Julian Edelman and he's going to produce at that level he was producing last year. Now I think there are questions of why he can do that. We'll talk about a few of them in a second. But if he's producing at that level and that's clearly his upside, that's, he was, that would have been the wide receiver seven. That is high end wide receiver numbers, and you're getting him in the twenties among wide receivers in the middle rounds of drafts. So that type of upside I think, is hard to find, especially if you know the the hashtag Angry Brady storyline uh, holds any merit. but to the to the other point with you know there are some mitigating factors this year, the Patriots added two guys, one of them who I think is pretty good, one of them who I really don't know, and that is Martellus Bennett and Chris Hogan. They added both those guys to the mix. Do you see either taking on a big role in in this passing game?
2: I see both probably getting overhyped in fantasy leagues, and I see both having you know definitely decent roles. You don't give a guy twelve million or whatever like you gave Chris Hogan if you're planning to Aaron Dobson him. And you know, page, clearly, it's an offense where we've seen two tight ends work to perfection. But so I. I definitely think I'm most comfortable – obviously more comfortable with Martellus Bennett and where I think even though he'll be the number two tight end for the Patriots, I think he could still be a low-end tight end one. But he's, he, he had such a weird year last year. Where he's getting older now. He's a famous kind of head case. And he only averaged like 8.3 yards per catch last season, which to me is really concerning. I feel like yards per catch is like a, a, very, you know, a very basic stat that sometimes gets ignored a little too much. A lot of times it doesn't tell anywhere close to the whole story, but anytime I see a guy, you know, who's averaged more like an 11 to 12 range his whole career, suddenly get down to eight, you know, I start to wonder how much he has left physically, but I definitely think they will both have roles and, but you know, it's the Patriots. So they'll probably both, a lot of times Patriots players get overpriced. So, I think Martel has I feel good about him being in the what, tight end ten to twelve range, but I bet he'll get drafted in probably in the tight end seven to eight and nine range. And I'm probably not willing to pay that for him. And if you can draft Chris Hogan as a legitimate like wide receiver four, like maybe a low end wide receiver four, I think that's a worthy risk. But you know, if he ends up kind of getting in like the thirty six, thirty seven range, you know, that's going to be too expensive for me in an offense where you can't count on anyone week to week other than Rob Gronkowski. So. They're both kind of guys where I have to see how their ADPs go this summer. But I see the roles, but I don't know if I see the, the return on investment.
1: See, I I will believe in Martellus Bennett as a consistent option when I see it. And that means that I won't have him in any leagues. I don't know how many more times we have to live through this Gronk compliment. Someone's coming in to compliment Gronk. He's going to be a fantasy superstar. Just be like Aaron Hernandez in you know, 2012 or whatever year that was. And you know he's going to come in for sure. And, and we know that he's going to be good. We hear it. We've heard it so many times, you know, Bennett's better than Scott Chandler. He's better than Tim Wright. He's better than Nate Sudfield. So he's
2: significantly better than, I mean, I understand where you're coming from, but yeah, it is a different situation where that, he has the very, what I like most about Martellus Bennett as a player is that he's not Scott Chandler. And that's always where I, that's always what I've really admired about Martellus Bennett's game is that he's not Scott Chandler.
1: And I mean, that's fair. And he's definitely better than those guys. But at some point there's a role in the offense that they're asking someone to fill and they want a better person in that role than what they've had previously. But that doesn't mean that that role suddenly going to expand. And so expecting him to get consistent targets, will he get mat- in certain matchups? Will he you know, get eight, nine targets and really be an effective fantasy player? Sure. Picking those matchups is going to be a headache. And I would expect that by the time Rob Gronkowski gets hurt, if he gets hurt, which is the only way that I really see Martellus Bennett becoming a guy I trust week to week, that by that time, he's probably going to be on the waiver wire because people are going to be fed up with him. So he's just not a guy I'll draft at all because I see no purpose. I see no reason for it. And I'm happy to miss out on him because even even if he comes to be, becomes a consistent fantasy option, he's going to be a low end tight end one, and you can stream and do better than that. So I'm just really not that interested in Martellus Bennett at all. I am kind of interested in Chris Hogan. I will look during training camp to see where he plays. If he's playing on the outside, if he's filling kind of that old Brandon LaFell role, then that means he can get targets. We've seen Brandon LaFell, when he's been healthy the last two years, get targets. Now, he dropped most of them, but they were were there and they existed. And if Chris Hogan comes in and fills that role, then he's going to be an interesting fantasy guy. I agree with you that there's a chance that the hype train takes off and he's overvalued. But I'm still I would still be interested in him if we hear a lot of stories coming out of camp that he's playing that, you know, quote unquote X role.
2: Yeah, and Chris Hogan could be a guy it could kind of go either way where he could maybe get overhyped because he's a patriot or he could fly completely under the radar. You know, patriots aren't you know, aren't exactly famous for sharing information on you know how they're gonna deploy players during the regular season in August. So maybe Chris Hogan doesn't really make any waves and doesn't really you know, it doesn't become a kind of a weekly puff piece all-star type guy, and you can actually get him in like the 50s or 60s, and there I'm very, very, very very interested in him, because I mean, you're supposedly going to play on the outside, kind of in the old Brandon LaFell role, like you said, and that's a role the Patriots want to utilize, but just haven't had the personnel to really make it Brandon LaFell kind of got there in 2014, but I feel like it's a position they want to be a much bigger part of their offense but they just haven't been able to find the player to do it, basically since Randy Moss left and, you know, if he if Chris Hogan just has kind of a straight line summer where his, his price doesn't get too out of control, he, he could be a, a huge bargain, but again, it's the Patriots. So I, I kind of have a hard time believing he'll stay in like the wide receiver kind of 50, 60 range where he is. But if he does it's a flyer, I'm I'm taking it every draft basically.
1: Yeah, I agree. So that's about it for Pat and I, we will be back next week to talk about the storylines heading into the NFC training camps There should be some interesting battles in the NFC, especially at running back. So that should be a fun listen as well. If you've listened this far, I assume that means you like the podcast. So if so, you should think about giving us a review wherever you find us, either on iTunes, Stitcher, or some other podcast source. Reviews help other people find the podcast and help us grow our fan base. We'd really appreciate it if you do that. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at rm summerlin. You can follow Pat on Twitter. He's at RotoPat. And that's about it. So I guess all that's left to say is thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.
0: The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble.